I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Joe Salamone on the show today from Crush Wine and Spirits. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? Uh, not bad. How about you? Uh, good to see you. Well, I mean, so email blasts, there weren't so many of those before you guys started up the shop. Has that always been a big focus for you? or uh, For sure. And how does that go down? I mean, like when you do an email blast, uh, you focus on one wine or you focus on a producer or... Uh, often it's one wine. Sometimes we, we do do producers. Uh, frankly, the more options you give people, the more kind of they pull back and, and almost feel confused. Oh, is that true? For sure. It's kind of like focus their interest on this topic and uh, that whether that be one wine or two wines and kind of get them to make a decision. Totally. Oh, I didn't realize that that's how, how it went down. Are there other keys to like making a good email? Uh, for, for sure. And, you know, sometimes it's like, nah, like we kind of send kind of somewhat informed spam and that people just look at the price and don't read the emails and whatever. But you can really tell when an email is well-written, informed, seems to, to come from the heart. It does better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. People actually read them. I feel like uh, when I have seen you guys' emails that they've been pretty long and informative. Like there's a lot of information in there. For, we, we definitely try. And, um, you know, I, I write a good amount of emails and you can sink hours into it. Is that true? Like For, especially if you have to do like research and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and often it's like you wake up every morning and you're like, how do I get this email together in a way that's informed kind of lively and engaging uh and it can be an adventure you know one of the things i realized is that so a lot of times we talk about like how the wine world has changed and how uh wines from everywhere sell now um but one of the things that occurs to me is that it's not like those wines are necessarily new wines or even new producers. Um, it's just that they weren't being talked about before, and it really it's more about now they're in the conversation. I'm talking about like Muscadet or wines from the Canary Islands or wines from Sicily. I mean, it's not like they didn't sure. make wine there. It's just that they weren't being talked about. 
Do you see email blasts as a part of that in terms of getting that conversation started or for, for continuing sure. that conversation? I, I mean, I think often it's the story that makes the sale. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and but especially- what is what what stories appeal? Is it about people or is it about places? I mean, when I say like that's limestone soil, does that appeal? Or when I say that this is a steep slope, does that appeal? I mean, what what is it that that resonates? I mean, it, it really varies from from wine to wine. Um, to to give an example, say um, uh, Fernando de Castilla uh, Fino. Sure, the shares. Um, yeah, and you know, I I. We worked with him directly for a while, and I, I bought a bunch. And at a certain point, I was like, "Ooh, maybe I made a mistake here." Like in terms of how much stock much. you had, yeah. and I was like, "You know, this Fino is is actually fascinating, and mm-hmm. it's challenging, and and it's not for ev- everyone, and it's made in a way that's completely kind of archaic, a little know? bit higher alcohol, right? Yeah, yeah, it it gets um two two kind of doses of alcohol." You know, usually you get the the dose in barrel when it starts going to the Solera. Historically, you would get a second dose at bottling. Okay, like so, historically, how many years ago are we talking about? I think you'd be um, you'd be looking at the the fifties. Oh, okay, nineteen fifties. Yeah. So some time ago. I mean, it's been for, a while for sure. Um, maybe maybe it, it would stretch into the seventies. Okay. Once that that ultra filtered. Style came of of fino of fino manzanilla super clean absolutely young um you didn't need and as the technology for filtration increased got it um that second dose of alcohol was meant to kill any floor that could develop in the bottle make it more stable etc but um talk about a story yeah, you know, this is kind of old school. Fino. Not a lot of people are making it. It's that a, way. a relic. Yeah, um, he's virtually the the only person. And as Sherry as a whole, seems like a big story that you kind of got on a little bit earlier than some. Uh, have you seen a big growth in that market? Uh, huge. I, I mean, um, I I've kind of drank Sherry since I've been serious into wine. Yeah, I, I was living in Berkeley. The Spanish table was there. I think the New York Times ran an article, a tasting panel on Finos, how great they were. Uh-huh. So I started drinking them, and they're at my disposal. So, and they're it, cheap, uh, it, it, or exactly. were cheap, or um, and still good values. And yeah, I mean, what an Ascende goes for is is pretty ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, for the quality. Um, and so I, I always wanted to champion cherry. Yeah. It was always a dog. Yeah, they just didn't get the resonance. Um, and then it, it's hard because there's no vintages, so there's no. It's hard to figure out a way to hype it in a way because, right? Hey, this is new. Doesn't work for, for that for sure, and it's not limited. Right, right. It's like, right. oh, well, if I skip it this time, I can just get it later. Or whatever. Get the next bottle in. Right. Um, and when Labota came out. Oh, okay. They were stunning. There was a sense of limitedness. Got it. Got people talking. I didn't even put that together, that that, that was part of it, that, that the limited part, you know, was a big thing. For sure. And especially distribution wasn't great for the first few years. It was terrible, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, and now it's gotten better, but there are more people. But that got people talking again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And. Trying to hunt them down. And- for, for sure. And the, at one point, I secured a, a good amount of 24, which was the Fino Amontillado from Mantilla. Okay. 
N22, which was a, a manzanilla. Mm-hmm. Um, and we sent out an offer, and it went pretty gonzo, or, or I don't know. It did well. It did well, yeah. yeah. Um, and I was like, maybe this is a, a good time. Yeah. And Crush was like, sure, like, do you want to go there? And I I was still skeptical. Yeah. And I actually put it in part of a personal vacation. So so the business was a kind of pain for, for everything. For everything. Because I, I was like, I don't know what the return on this is going to be. Like, yeah. You send me out there and we sell four cases. Right. You might be a little upset. Yeah. yeah. Um, but in, pretty incredible. Like, uh, how would you describe what's happening with Sherry right now in, in the New York market? It seems like it's growing huge. Um, and distribution has changed. Um, Vadaspino is now with Planner Selections, who has a, a great reach and has a good sales team. Which respected. is something that Vadaspino didn't have for a no, long for, time. For ages, I was one of the only people in New York with it because yeah. I had to seek it out from some dude. Yeah. Um, and... Um, Fernando de Castilla, I've heard sure. interest Butler. from two different uh, importers recently. Like yeah. one called me and was like, hey, uh, you know, I talked to Fernando de Castilla and they said they already just went with somebody else. Like that seems surprising to me. You know what I mean? For sure. Um, so a huge amount of interest. Um, certainly Peter's book. Uh, Peter Leem. Yeah. Yeah. Peter uh, Leem's book. Previous which, guest on the show. Um, is just um, kind of get unreleased today and then kind of more officially Monday. But a lot of people release books. I mean, what is it about Sherry that has really catapulted it to the interest of the forefront and, and kind of the New York scene at, uh, amongst uh, younger people right now? Uh, I think it's it's complicated. It's a, it's a new frontier. Mm-hmm. It's, it's extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, it's somewhat of an underdog. Uh-huh. And Everybody kind of likes to fight the good fight. Uh-huh. I mean, you have vineyards just, you know, being taken over by golf courses and solar panels. And there's a sense that we're losing something if we don't step up to preserve it. For sure. Um, and then you have people who've been there who are really excited about, it. and that that helps. Um, also, I think things have have really changed in the wine business. Say when Crush opened in '05. You'd get calls like, hey, I'm calling about this like prune offer. These wines the best because I only buy the best. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know how to answer that, dude. They're, yeah. They're good. Like, there's a lot of Riesling. Yeah. And they're different in how and, they taste. And, you know, people would very much want it the best. Yeah. And this is, say, 05, like the kind of plush, oaked up styles that, that you know, you could associate with Parker. We're, we're definitely big. Australian wine was still big. Yeah. Um, and really, it started to shift where all of a sudden, Joe Dresner was very important. People didn't look for the best. They looked for a unique experience. They looked to kind of expand. There's a curiosity, a playfulness. Oh, so... Or, orange wines. I mean, Grafner's first vintage was one where he did full-on skin contact, and... That was probably November, December of of '05 that he released it. Um, so you think more of an interest in something distinctive and possibly unique as opposed to the greatest? For, for sure. 
and and, and the idea of experience and that and and being receptive to it. And and maybe a little bit more emphasis on this comes from that place in particular. That, absolutely. And do you think that that is kind of like an extrapolation of the Burgundian idea, like the idea of like one terroir, one man, one place? Uh, for sure. And also, it's somewhat part of, for lack of better term, the zeitgeist, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. farm to table. Mm-hmm. How many people? How many people are making kind of very good pickles in this country now? Yeah. And, and that kind of blew up at the at the same time and wanted some sense of immediacy and kind of honesty and soul to things or that perceived quality. Does it seem like people want a particular person to be uh, behind the wine and also at a small scale? Sometimes I feel like uh, by virtue of being larger, some of the more classic wines like by virtue of being larger producers or being less and less esteemed. For for sure. I mean, Roder, Champagne, Vintage. Um, Pretty good wine. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's hard to convince people, big house, but not a top, you know, it's not Clotha Menil or, or something that's perceived as a blue chip great wine. Um, for sure. And and what you mean is it, it's hard to convince people that it's in the league of the growers. Yes. Whereas that conversation might have been like the opposite oh 10 years ago. For, for sure. Like you might have had a hard time convincing somebody that the grower champagne That's was some quirky good. guy who kind of makes it make champagne in a, in a slightly idiosyncratic style. Yeah, that that was a much tougher sell. So, I mean, do you think it's the zeitgeist or, I mean, what, what has caused this change to happen? Are we trying to get back in touch with something that may have lost in the culture or what's going on? I mean, I don't know for sure. Yeah. I I mean, I think part of what happens is people need novelty. Uh They need stuff to get excited about. Yeah. They also need stuff to kind of push away to, to differentiate what they care about. I see. And you know, if you, if you read Kermit Lynch's like adventures along the, the winery. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's from 84. Yeah. I could be mistaken, but it's eighties, 80 something. But all of this stuff had been in play, but slowly got a bigger market share. And there are plenty of people writing about wine that, said, wait, you know what, like, oak, ripe fruit, um, it's not, I want wine with more soul, more honesty. Not something that can be done everywhere. So yeah. it's kind of the opposite of the fighting varietals, like, hey, you could make Merlot here, you could make Merlot there, you could make Merlot there. Right? For, for sure. Um, and, you know, I think, like, Eric Asimov's right, then really reached a lot of people with this kind of aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, and he publishes on a weekly basis. So it's kind of like it hammers home. It gets more and more people. So um, it's not like a quarterly thing or, you know, you don't have to be uh, online in a specific wine forum. You might just be paging through your paper and there's this this content. And so it, by virtue of that, it reaches a lot of people. For sure. Um and um, it seems like you have been kind of ahead of the game in identifying things that later uh, became popular. And I would say that the, that in particular you, uh, maybe even apart from the store, uh, have driven some of those uh, moves. Like you have did it through the store, but I really associate certain things with you. 
like I feel like you were one of the people that was very early on Taganavant. I feel, which is now quite popular, I feel like you uh, had a big hand in bringing mock uh, wines from the Girard to the market when they weren't really around, uh, and now they're quite uh, quite more well thought of and kind of uh, more current in the market. Uh, same thing with Metra. I feel like you sort of had a big hand in bringing that in when it was not being brought in uh, from the Beaujolais area. Um, what is it that you think separates a buyer who is breaking new ground from a buyer who isn't? And and how is it that you've managed to pick a few things that have later become, as you might say, picking a good horse? Um, I mean, in some ways I, I was lucky. Um, some ways I, I, as, as not concrete as this is, I, I often have good instincts. Uh-huh. Um, I also work for a place that has enough money that I can play with it. And, you can make and, a move. And I'm given a huge amount of autonomy there. Um, so that's for, for sure. Um, other things, you know, I, I just kind of read, read, read. Mm-hmm. Um, somehow I, I feel like I'm compensated well enough that, or maybe it's because I, I, live somewhat of a modest lifestyle, but I was able to travel mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, you know, read like crazy, read up on regions, be- really di- digest a huge amount and then be there and just rip through everything. I don't know, talk to people and, and kind of pull stuff from there. So let me ask you, I mean, how many more times can this trick happen? I mean, and I mean, it's one earth, uh, you know, I feel like, now that we've gotten to the Canary Islands, what more is there to find? I mean, are there hidden vines on Easter Island? Are there hidden vines on the Galapagos that we don't know about? I mean, I feel like a lot has no, been I, reached. Are, are are there more frontiers or things that we're just ignoring that are in our backyard? How many more times are we going to be able to find an extra, uh, a Ganavant-level producer? I, I mean, so one reason to be optimistic is that there's more commercial or financial incentive for people to work that hard in these places. Mm-hmm. There, there's a mm-hmm. lot more now than there maybe has ever been. Mm-hmm. So that that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, Someone might look at what, uh, say, Jean Foyard is doing and say, hey, that's that's working. He's doing okay, for, for sure. so I can try or, something like that. I mean, Ganabat, he's never impressed me as a, a wealthy man. Uh-huh. There's not you know, a Porsche parked outside, and his yields are low, and, and he's kind of so committed to quality, but the wines aren't cheap. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, 45, 60, a hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. But they've gone up a bit. I mean, in oh, the last for, for, two years even. Yeah. No, no denying that. Um, but he's able to do it. Yeah. So it's possible. For, for sure. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I, I do wonder to some extent, the the wine world has is factionalized, but is that true? A little bit, but not not as much as you would assume. Like I I do feel like that maybe it's just because where I work, what I deal with, um, it's specific. And you know, for a while we had Australian wine, New World wine, and we still have some California wine, but it's clearly not our focus. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. if you if you go into the store and you dig this stuff. You're gonna be like, ah, like 
you feel like there's other shops that do that for people, and so you mean that like by factions, these guys kind of deal more old world. These kind of guys do more new world. Yeah, maybe maybe that's true, and I just can't see the big picture. But I do think um, in recent years there's been a paradigm shift, and that this style of wine has become so dominant for people that maybe, like you said, maybe we have almost milked it for all it's worth. And what is that going to mean for, I mean, because it seems like more and more importers are getting into the business. Are they going to be able to find something to bring back? Or am I am I just being overly pessimistic? Or what is the reality? You know, I, I actually think because there is, a, a, there, there is some money in it. Uh-huh that you will find wines that will be very, very good, you know, perfectly serviceable kind of table wines, like drink every day, sell or some, um, will like another Clos Rougiard pop up or another Versailles or Ganavat. Um, and in one way you never know until they do, you're always kind of blindsided by these people. But I do, I do think that so many people are important wines. So tentacles are kind of everywhere, and I, I haven't seen kind of the next big thing for a while because people have just spent the past five years turning over every stone. It seems like some of the conversation now is even shifting away from how distinctive things are to how uh, everyday they can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see that too? I sometimes uh, get a hint that people are just looking to have a glass of wine now. I I see that less because I, um, I think a lot of our client base, especially um, the ones that I interact with on mm-hmm, a daily mm-hmm. basis, buy more wine than they can drink. I see. And the idea of like, oh, this is just a good wine to have around. It's like I have wine coming out of my ears. Yeah. Like that's the last thing I If need. it's not in some way special, they're not taking it on. For for sure. And also can age because it's going to go into their storage. They might not get there for a while. Yeah. Um, so how did you get started in the business? Oh, God. So um, I called called. Cold, cold called crush. Yeah, um, which right before the holiday season in '05. Okay, um, they had opened in March, so it was very much a, a new business. I actually got the somebody was like, "Hold on," I got the GM on the phone, and he's like, "Okay," like I'd never, never worked in wine before, but had um, spent at least three years, you know, drinking around and and kind of becoming obsessed enough to to be willing to to take the plunge. Okay. Um and he was like, okay, like, okay, like, so what do you what was the last bo- bottle of wine you drank? Yeah. And I was like, oh, like I had O2 Diashan Franc de Piet last night. Oh yeah. And he was like, okay, like come in for this interview. Yeah. I'll um, see you on Wednesday then. Yeah. Um, and perfect, you know, perfect answer. And at this point, I knew wine, but um I learned it pretty much in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd worked for someone uh, at my teenage job who who I'd gotten pretty close with, and you know, bought chip, like Grateful Dead tickets for him, and hung out with his family. And he had um, worked for Wildman back oh, okay. back in the day when they had DRC Leflev, um, and he actually had DRC Leflev. Um, lots of Penfolds Grange. Oh, he'd bought a few bottles to, to sock away. 
for sure. And and he'd won sales contests and whatever else. Like he he opened up my my first bottle of uh, DRC eighty five Romney County. Pretty yeah, good one. It, I mean, it made everything else I drank up until then seem like five week old grape juice. Yeah, I mean. And and so you went through, and what happened in the interim? What, you you were doing like uh, teaching and personal training, and uh, so yes, I um, I actually spent years as a as a bodybuilder, my mm-hmm. as a as a teen, um, and we we can return to that yeah. if you want, because um, it may actually have relevance, and then. After college, I'd planned on applying to law school, um, had worked with kids and, and taught. I TA'd and tutored in college and then worked at a fresh air fun camp for, for summers. Um, and I took a job working first with um, kids with emotional disabilities okay. and then kids with autism. Um, and really wanted to do that for a few years as something I enjoyed. Something I what felt. are the good takeaways of that? Um I, honestly, it a lot of it had to do with how to approach people, mm-hmm. how, oh, okay. how to speak, um, and um, you, usually when I make requests on people, they when I make requests, they they do it. Yeah, and there's a way of um, of um, delivering stuff that's so neutral and, uh-huh, and uh-huh. well reasoned and and that. You know, it's the way you would talk to kids with with emotional disabilities who, Got it. you know, really are at, you know, about to flip out, can have the potential to flip out at any any second. Um, it was also I went to school for for philosophy and comparative literature, so I there was no special ed training in my background. It was I just worked with kids from the inner city and you and kind of talk. saw what worked. Yeah, and I had good mentors, and um, you know. Both both of my jobs, I actually applied for a teacher's aide position, and somehow they liked me enough to give me a teacher's position. I don't know what I said in those interviews. Dia Sean, you're like Dia Sean Frank to Pete, and they're like, "Well, clearly you're teacher of uh, uh, material." No, I'm that, just kidding. But so you you mentioned about the personal training. How do you think that that may have played into your own history? Uh, so, um, you know, I was. I was a competitive power lifter. Okay. Um, and I, I wanted to do bodybuilding. And this was from 14 to 17. Got it. Um, and it's it's kind of a bizarre and seemingly incongruous fact about me because today I'm a you know uh, 148 pounds, five five five. When I was 17, I was 205. Oh my god. Um, I was probably skinnier than, than I, I am today. Um, and you know, it's it's easy to to look at weightlifting and think it's just kind of boneheads lifting weights, but it's it's actually more complicated than that. How does that uh, play out? I, I mean, simply put, you know, weightlifting is an adaptive response to build muscle. It's an adaptive response mm-hmm. from your body. So you know, you burn yourself, you get calluses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You lift weights; it's too much weight for your than your body's used to. You get bigger muscles. Um, but your body also wants to maintain some sense of homeostasis. Like that it's not all crazy all the time. For, for sure. Like it just wants to kind of have some type of, of baseline kind of normalcy. And that's what you, you, one of the things you have to really battle 
Um, and that, you know, I spent years reading, reading, reading up on, on all kinds of theories. And a lot of them, you know, lots of physiology, lots of, of kind of biochemistry. Um, and I was young and, you know, a lot, I mean, some of it was watered down, but there was a, a sophistication there. Yeah. Um, because people have an interest in this, people want to do oh, this. Oh yeah, people. Yeah. There's a lot of people who want to build muscle. It's a real kind of subculture. Yeah, kind of like wine in a way. Mm-hmm. But I mean, when I look at magazines and stuff that aren't necessarily weightlifter magazines, I see like these like how to build muscle things, and they seem like bullshit. Is that? And that's, I, I mean, um, I, I'm really happy I went through the the weightlifting period. Uh-huh. It was a, I mean, I ate ten times a day, ten thousand calories a day. Worked out anywhere from three times a week to six, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it really claimed, you know, a lot of my teenage years. Yeah, it was not a normal kind of high school experience. Um, and you know, when I see people who who a lot of people who I respect in in wine, um, when you talk to them, you always find out that they like collected records for fifteen years or. You're obsessed with with neorealist film or, or new wave film, or, yeah. And I think that you know, wine isn't astrophysics, but yeah. it does place demands on people. Uh-huh. Memory, um, just learning the field of what's important. You know, vintages, all, all of that, and there's a lot to know for for sure. And there's also just a lot of noise. Oh, and I there's see. There's a lot of stuff like. A lot of hype. For for sure. And and there's a lot of stuff that, you know, it's very hard to taste and be attentive. Oh, okay, um, okay. You know, sometimes you're late. Sometimes you're waiting for an email. You know, there are people who, if they say they like a wine and I taste it, it's hard for me to taste it. And, and I respect them. Yeah. It's hard for me to taste it and not want to like the wine. Right. I um, find that too. And... One thing that that there there are at least three things I think we lift and did. One is that it really does like a lot of sports force you to have a connection with your body. Oh, okay. And force you to to pay attention. Oh, um, okay. You want to know how the workout routine is working when you do exercises or for particular muscle groups. Like if you do it right, you should be like, I can feel it here, and I know know what's happening. Um, and when it comes to taste and you kind of need that much, like, this is what's happening here. You need to be in tune with For, yeah, the I senses. Mean, absolutely. Um, you know, wines show different, different days. Not every bottle is the same. Um, different glasses. Sometimes a wine just lands, and it's not bottle shot. It's bizarrely open. And you kind of have to be attentive to all of these things. And some of it is that base knowledge. And... And some of it is just paying attention. Mm-hmm. How um, how important do you think paying attention is in a business? I mean, like, I mean to to be able to to objectively ob- objectively you know figure out what what's up with a wine. Huge. Mm-hmm. It's also really hard. Uh-huh. Like I, I would say, you fail way more than you succeed in a way. So is it kind of like ignoring those bullshit ads about weightlifting and whatever? For, that, for sure. Is that, that same thing? Like you have uh, to ignore the sales spiel? 
Yeah, um, so to some extent, and also it's a discipline. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Really um, focusing in for for sure. Um, and then back to to the weightlifting. You know, there's so much information that I feel like you you do build a capacity when you've done stuff like this in the past. That it's almost like a generalized skill. To so when you approach wine. Yeah, you approach wine. You're able to remember all of this craziness mm-hmm. and having focused so much no matter what you do there's always hype and mm-hmm. stuff and there's also a, a maturation process where you where it becomes like an individualized like i like this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i don't like this like i get why people like what whatever but this is kind of what i look for yeah um because it does there is in the market a difference between you know what other people might buy and what you might like or for for sure and and you have you have to kind of keep your own palate while understanding that you're marketing to people who may not share it i guess totally um so what is who does succeed in retail i mean you know here you, you worked your way up from a guy who did stock and and sales at crush to a guy who does a bulk of the buying at a major shop in manhattan uh you know which is i think a national player um uh, you know who who does do well, and wh- who maybe leaves that to go into restaurants or in some other part of the wine market. I mean, what are the characteristics of people who are drawn to retail? Huh. I mean, I think retail. A lot of it is um, the schedule is attractive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think you know, you work at a restaurant, you get to taste more. Um, Often I, I do believe that there's there's a little bit more money to be had in the, in restaurants. Oh, I might be true? mistaken. I feel I feel like that might be, um, but also in restaurants it's even more grueling than retail. Just like crushing hours. Yeah, because you have to do the stuff that's all the buying like around the floor service. Like you can't do the buying while you're on the floor. I for, guess. for sure. Um, and there's a huge amount of pressure involved. Um, and there's also like you you have to look for, you have to be dressed very well often. Uh-huh. I mean, I think that's tamed down in recent years, but like the look, whatever it might be, is important. Yeah, whether it's the hipster look or the that's more of a restaurant thing. Like you have to have a look for for sure. Um, also, I think retails where people grow roots. Uh huh. Uh huh. Most like, people who who get into a good position in retail stay there. And that might be 10 years of a shop or it might be, you know, however for, long. For sure. Whereas some of these maybe, some of them obviously stick around for a long time, but others tend to be kind of nomadic. Like you're like, oh, that dude's not here anymore? Oh, okay. Totally. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. So, well, let me ask you though. I mean, here we talked about the differences and what it's like to work uh, in, in retail and restaurants, but have we seen the kind of items that are available in restaurants also migrate more to retail? Like when I talk to you, I talk to a retailer that's like breaking new wines into the market that weren't even available in the States. Now you're, you've brought them in. Doesn't that seem like not too long ago, like something that maybe an importer might've done. And if an importer didn't do it, it was more of a restaurant thing. I mean, is this kind of new for retail? Um, Yeah. I, I think it is um, partially. I think part of of the increase of email blasts. Uh huh. Um, you're able to to expose numerous people to to wines in one shot. Like you're able to have a long conversation with them 
in a focused manner that and, you may not have if they're just coming in looking totally. for something off the street. And one email, you can have a conversation with a with a lot of people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you know, you spend four hours making it, but you have uh, that level of conversation with a thousand people. For, for sure. Which and, you couldn't do in And person. you also build up a level of trust. Um, and I know you, you can do this in the restaurant business, but I think more people buy wine more often from a particular retailer than they do from a particular restaurant. Because maybe their wife or a business guests want to go to new places for, for sure. Whereas they might return all the time to the same retailer. Yeah. That's interesting. Or, or shop with three or four. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hmm. And, but I mean, have now that there's less, um, kind of allocated items, has the landscape of what retail does shift somewhat in the sense that are you selling more high ticket items? I know that's not your, so much your buying field, but does retail sell more high ticket items? Whereas maybe once that was more the province of restaurants. Um, honestly, I'm not, I'm not sure because I'm not sure what, what happens at restaurants. Uh uh Um, crush was always conceived to be somewhat of a, of an edgy, you know, on the forefront, you know, mid-range type of place and a in a high-end place oh i see um so from the beginning it was like certain yeah but did that feel like kind of a new thing for sure yeah. um and i i think it kind of took two models the the kind of small like artisanal grower model and then also the the ultra high-end model so what's the difficulty when you're dealing with ultra artisanal uh wines to keep things in stock. Does that mean that you're always kind of like chasing the next thing uh, because you might blow through the 10 cases that were available? For sure. And like, also it's, you know, like Ganavat, I see less, as he gets more popular, Yeah, I see less of it every year. Are, in a way, are you um, like grooming your uh, prodigy there to leave? Like, are you like setting up things that you really admire and praising them? And then watching them get too expensive or too limited to sell. Um. So yes, yeah. I I mean sometimes you know you just can't offer wines that were offered two years ago. You can't offer. You, you can let people who know bought who bought them previously that they're there, and then you have to find something new. Oh, you're saying that like you can't send out an email blast because the quantity is so little so small, that yeah. you would have to turn away more orders than for would sure. Be it worth would be it. an exercise and frustration for the customer, for the staff. Um, there, you know, demand would be so so high. So, I mean, is that ever frustrating? Where you're like, boy, I really made this wine or in this market. Oh, and for, yet for sure. Now I can no longer buy it. Is that ever a problem? Yeah, yeah, for for sure. And I mean, in some ways, it's Good for the grower, uh-huh. and you you want to be happy about that, and because they're making more sales and more money. Yeah, and also you know if if it's in one place, where it's a little bit more limited how word gets out, and then you're also reliant on you know one, three, four, five people to sell your wine. Or if it's spread more, more people are exposed. Maybe people call you to ask you if you have it, that kind of thing. For, if for it's sure. out in a, if it's if it's hip in the community. Yeah. And on the other side, you feel like you kind of 
own this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And from a business perspective, you're like, I could be making money on this. It feels like a legitimate claim that like I really put my neck out. Um, but you're someone that also like uh, goes out a little bit, and you go to restaurants. I mean, when you look at some of the lists that are happening in New York, maybe downtown or in Brooklyn, does it feel like restaurants today are focusing on what might have traditionally been retail items, like items that would go on a list under a hundred dollars that they're maybe buying for twenty, twenty-five wholesale? For for sure. So um, is it almost kind of like a switch in a way? Like where retail is doing more adventurous work and maybe more high-end work uh, for people who don't want to pay the margin uh, that you'd have to pay in a restaurant. And, and restaurants are moving more towards items that you might have purchased at the store at one time? I, I, that has to be. Um, and more and more, I think restaurants um, have smaller budgets for this stuff. Mm-hmm. They're... There's it opens up a huge amount of creativity. Um, drinkers are younger, and they want to experience these things, but they they can't cough up the dough for 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 that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have money to build a cellar, um, so you you focus on wines at gentle price points. Often natural wines drink earlier and easier. Uh, and you focus on that, and it, and it works well. Um, what do you think about the natural wine kerfluffle? I mean, what's going on with that in the market, and who's, who's driving that? Is it driving from the importer side, or is it driving from a consumer's desiring it side, or what's actually happening? Uh, it has to be both. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the natural wine movement is somewhat of an extension of that that paradigm shift we talked about earlier where people wine stuff that was more honest, more immediate. And the idea of lower sulfur, organic, natural yeast, it's all, the idea is, is that it's almost closer to, you know, the grapes fermented, you know, you put in grapes, they ferment, you put them in the barrel, and you take out wine. So it's almost closer to what the winemaker himself tastes when he tastes into his own for, winery for sure. in the barrel. So it's yeah. almost kind of like giving you a glimpse of being a winemaker in a way. Like you're right there in the cellar. A, a sense of immediacy. Um, and, you know, some of those wines can be the purest, most delicious wines. They're, they're tricky wines. Um, it's it's gotten trendy, mm-hmm. which... Um, difficulty there is make a natural wine natural wines are some of the most difficult to make mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so you when you have a trend you have people who want to make wine oh like i see this. but it demands so much there's of, market interest yeah but you have to be attentive to things that could go wrong because so much more could go wrong for, for sure because you're not dosing it with things that would stable stabilize it for sure um and that's that's kind of my only my only issue. I, I mean, in in general, I'm I'm very supportive of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but when because of the demands it places on winemaking, and honestly, like it's one of those things that occasionally you're going to mess up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that there might be. I I would say my only concern is is that they proliferate to a point. Or not everything is is wonderful. Um, 
So, I mean, you guys do deal with some high-end sales. Is it true at retail, like I hear at restaurants, that Bordeaux is just not an interesting category to consumers anymore? Or what's going on with that? Um, what I experience, people aren't, not that many people are calling up and being like cases of cases and cases of Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some people. But I think a lot of the action has moved to, to Burgundy. Uh-huh. Um, but then... As far as people coming in to buy a bottle of Bordeaux to drink, mm-hmm. there's tons of interest there. Oh, is that true? For, for sure. Like something that's mature enough to be ready to drink in just one bottle? Yeah, or a couple bottles. Um, but I think whereas California wine and Bordeaux, for a lot of people who were beginning to, to feel affluent, and you know, you're, you're in a hedge fund and you've kind of arrived. Mm-hmm. You know, five, ten years ago, you would look at Calif- Colt Cabs and, and Bordeaux. Now you look at Burgundy. I see. Um, so it's really become the new blue Broadway, chip. From what I've seen, yeah. And do you think that's, uh, in a way, social? Like, if a guy shows up with a Burgundy that's more in the club than if he shows up with something else to, uh, you know, the business dinner with the other guys? Yeah, for, for sure. So what are you drinking at home these days? Oh, God. Um, all, all sorts of things. Uh-huh, Often, uh-huh. Um, you know, and, and I really do try to drink a fair amount of what I buy at the store and track it and have a good feel for it. Because, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, you taste stuff, you buy it. It's like, often it's like one or two tastes. You want to um, sit with it for a while, see how it develops with dinner. For, exactly. Um, in the summer, I, I frankly don't drink a lot of wine. Um, I don't think wine shows that well. And in the humidity and in the heat, um, I'm often so disappointed that I'm happy to almost use it as a vacation from from wine and drink beer, you know, drink some fino sherry, manzanilla sherry, and and be happy. Um, what am I drinking now? Now that it's fall, I I am drinking some some Jura wines, um, Beaujolais. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. How have you seen the change in the Beaujolais market recently? Does it seem to be different than it was just a couple of years ago? For for sure. I mean, I think 05 was an important year as far as getting more people aware of it. And then 09 really blew it up. Yeah. And I mean, what you hope as a retailer is that when you have these blockbuster vintages, like 01 Germany or 09 Beaujolais, where the public wants them. Yeah that you're able to situate enough producers who you think really do good work every year, um, that you retain some of the people year in, year out. Do you feel like a lot of people like lurch from one big topical issue to another? Uh, yeah. Like, yeah I, I mean, it's an issue because, I mean, we're just so bombarded with information. Uh-huh. And when enough people say that this is like, the best ever. This is a special vintage. How can you not jump on that wagon? Uh huh. Everyone buys in onto you know 2005 Burgundy, 2001 Germany, 2009 Beaujolais. For, but do they stay in the market? I guess is the question. Um, I think more and more I, I have seen people stay. Yeah. I mean, if you were to look at numbers, you you would see a dip. Yeah. But but you would also see a trend that shows an increase. Um, in general, like people are going back to it. And is that 
partly because other burgundies then you know because Beaujolais after all is kind of part of burgundy uh, is that just because those have gotten so expensive and people want the burgundy hit without laying out a hundred or uh partially I, I think that helps also um you know the the natural wine mo- movement arguably started in Beaujolais yeah sure people like um, Lapier for for sure and and um Chauvet and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and I, I think it picks up a lot from there. I see. And also, um, maybe especially amendable to Gamay. Yeah. And when you when you um, ask me like what what I'm drinking these days, yeah, you know, occasionally like you know, I had um, an '83 uh, von Schuber Absberg actually. So Pretty good. Yeah. Gorgeous. Kind of sorry I missed that uh, um, dinner at your house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then often that you know, for for me wines. Um, kind of work on, on two levels or th- maybe three, like you, you cook a good meal at home, you mm-hmm. have a simple wine and, and the two really add up to something that like makes life seem worth living for, yeah, for you know, like that, yeah. that period of time. There's stuff that's just kind of fascinating and, and kind of mind rearranging. And then there's the stuff that's just gorgeous and, you know, at the top of the hierarchy in a way. And, Pristine and oh, Pro, yeah, profound. Um, and trust me, I, I, I'm happy to drink as many profound wines as I can track down, and people yeah. will will open for me. But I'm also happy to have a bottle of Beaujolais with the right meal and roast chicken. Yeah, and like as chaotic as as my life has been lately with just work, there's I'm kind of happy there. Yeah, there's a rusticity to a simple table meal. And in some ways, this is a, a footnote to your conversation earlier about restaurants um, having more kind of mid-range bottles. Or, mm-hmm. you know, like nice table wines, simple table wines. Um, they really have a, a place. And in some ways, they're pretty appropriate for restaurants like because the cuisine is so uh like profoundly uh worked like because it's so working on so many levels on the plate it's actually easier to pair like a fairly simpler wine sometimes for for sure and it's also often easier to serve that you know you don't have to worry as much about decanting the perfect moment yeah because food's coming and you got to serve it like let's get it going on exactly that's really interesting um and Maybe that gets back to your, like, have you seen people who just really want a glass of wine? Because, uh-huh. um, I, yeah, I wonder sometimes if people aren't, uh, you know, kind of tied into the glue-glue uh, natural wine movement, if people aren't just looking to have a glass of wine that's maybe not profound one day. <laughs> like for, for sure. You know, uh, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. I, I start to hear people talk about that. Uh, Mr. Salamone, a pleasure to have you on the show, sir. Joe Salamone of Crush Wine and Spirits, a guy that you should get to know if you don't already because you will drink better. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the 
crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.